Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark with uh, Mega Brands. Uh, really excited today to talk to Mark Mahaney, research analyst at Evercore ISI. Um, I have, you know, I've been investing since the mid 90s. And so I, I lived in San Francisco. We just talked about he lives he lives in the Bay Area. I used to live there and, and the Bay Area is kind of a shadow of its former self because of COVID and, and people that have moved out and, and working from home. But we have seen a lot of really wild and crazy times in markets, but also in high beta and growth stocks from the 2000, from the run up into 2000 and beyond. And Mark wrote the one, it's my favorite new book called Nothing But Net. He wrote it in November of last year. Is that, that's when it, it came out, Mark? That's right. Okay. Uh, super great book. I have it, you know, kind of, it's my, it's my new bedside reading book to go through a lot of the chapters. And I can't think of a better time than maybe to talk about the current environment with a lot of the things that you talked about in the book. And so you, you, you referenced in a, you know, a little analogy earlier. So once you start there and then I'll, I'll lean you into some of the, the chapters of the book and we can talk about the current situation. Well, Eric, we're talking on today, the day that the official, the, the bear market has been officially proclaimed today. Uh, because now the S and P 500 is legitimately below 20 percent below its uh, its peak, which is roughly at the beginning of la- uh, beginning of this year, end of uh, last year. So uh, these are the times that try investor souls. Uh, these are the times that try growth investor souls, but really all investor souls. You take a look at the the the, the best, the single best businesses out there. Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, they've all underperformed the market year to date. There's no place to hide in in tech. I mean, even Twitter with a bid from the world's uh, wealthiest person, I think is actually underperforming the market now, which says something more about the deal dynamics. And uh, that person who you know wrote that, whose line I stole about, these are the times to try uh, investor souls, uh, souls, I paraphrased his line, also wrote 
in uh, you know in um, in the depths of the American Revolution in early December of 1776, a couple of weeks before the crossing of the Delaware uh, and uh, battles of Trenton, and when things really turned, uh, but in the depths of despair, he wrote, you know, the the times of greatest challenges also provide the times of of greatest triumphs, and um, and so I think that's sort of how we want to think about this. You got to decide if you're a trader or an investor. If you're an investor. Hold on a second here. So you get a chance to buy some of the greatest tech assets out there at substantial uh, um, uh, discounts. Amazon uh, is trading at about a 30% discount to the normal multiple on free cash flow that's traded at well-tested multiple for years. Facebook's at 40% below. Google and um, a Apple and Microsoft aren't as dislocated, but they are dislocated. And my whole point of my book was, you know, focus on what I call DHQs, dislocated high quality companies. Spend most of your, your time, and I spend most of my time trying to figure out what are the highest quality assets out there, and we can go through that. And then wait for them to get dislocated, because my first chapter was every stock gets dislocated at some point or another, either for company specific reasons or for market rollovers. Well, we're in the midst of a market rollover here. So you gotta have the, you know, you gotta have some fortitude in that stomach, but you know, this is, this is when you can make your, some of your best uh, returns and timing the bottom on these markets is, it's not a fool's errand, but it's a very hard thing to do. And you're probably, I, I don't think I can do it. Uh, I don't know anybody who can do it. But um, but anyway, the, all I know is that I've got, I've got dislocated high quality stocks. And this is what we as investors should be looking for. I'd rather buy Apple, you know, when it's dislocated rather than when it's at an all time high. You make more money in the first than, than you do in the second. Well, it's funny. I had a conversation with an advisor that we work with, um, you know, this morning. And I just, it was like, listen, we, we all wanted these assets when they feel the best, right? But we never want them when they're the cheapest and they probably offer the best forward returns. Remember the buy low, sell high, that still works. And it's just, it's a psychology experiment that people want to buy things when everything seems the rosiest. And they never want to buy when the prices are dislocated, like you said. I mean, I, I took... The, 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 ch the chapter with the high quality companies. I just want to read it because it's, it's just so apropos and important. Highest quality companies, buy them in add-on dislocations with premium revenue growth, large TAMs uh, and markets, relentless product innovation, compelling customer value propositions, great visionary management teams. Um, I mean, that reduces your fundamental risk over time. You have to be willing to you know, go through periods of volatility because you never know when the bottom is. But gosh, now's the time when you have to be starting to pick away at those things. So, you know, do, do you think that, talk to me about your views on the, the timing of things, you know, the, 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 because of the pandemic, you know, I like to look, I'm a technical guy too. So I like to look at big picture charts to give me a picture on where things were. And, and naturally in May of 2000, the NASDAQ just started to rip out of the long-term 10-year trend. And we got well above that for a variety of reasons, inflation, you know, a stay-at-home economy, a lot of money went to a very few places that were really, really doing well, tech in, in particular. Then we had inflation and interest rates rose and, you know, that, that obviously takes the multiples down. So, I mean, where are we now in, in your space from a reset of the multiple and the reset of okay. the, you know, the, the, the popularity and the sentiment? 
you're, you're asking the right question. So, um, you know, when I say you want to buy stocks when they're cheap, well, you know, how do I know? And uh, so, you know, we do track it in our research. And uh, the data point I've got for you is that I, I look at our stocks and on EV to sales and EV to EBITDA multiples, when we track it over years, you know, we are at the um, we're at the lowest forward multiples on both of those EV to sales and EV to EBITDA for large cap um, uh, uh, internet stocks. That's kind of what I focus on. The lowest that we've seen in five years. So um, just I'll put some numbers around it. Uh, on EV to EBITDA, I look at the large cap internet stocks. So this would include your Amazons. It would include your Ebays. It would include Google. I'm going to throw an Uber in there and Facebook and Snap and Pinterest and Twitter's in there too. And the forward multiple now is 12 times EBITDA. The average pre-COVID, pre this thing was pretty consistently at 15 times. Okay, during COVID, we gapped up. We overbought, uh, you know, the stocks got overbought. It's always easy to say these things in hindsight, but it's pretty clear. I mean, we're, we knew that we were well above a uh, trend. And the question was, did we have a fundamentally changing event that would, you know, permanently accelerate the growth rates? Turns out we didn't, but we had a trend that for a certain period of time did. But now we went from being well over above, above the average, which was around 15 times. We went to as high as 20 times. Now we're down to 12 times. So could we go lower? Yes, but a lot of the multiple risk has been taken out in these names. So those are the numbers that I think about. I could do it on sales too, but the EV to EBITDA kind of give, gives you a sense. Yeah, we know that these stocks and some of them in particular, I mentioned Google, I mentioned Amazon and uh, and Facebook earlier. They're trading 30 to 40% below their average for their average multiples, um, pre-COVID multiples. So I call that truly dislocated. Timing is a darn thing. To, to, to figure out, but you know, I can just tell you, I can also do some simple things like, well, who's off 40%? Well, Facebook is, and, uh, and Amazon's now almost 40% off, you know, down uh, year to date. So dislocation, it's a, there's a little bit of signs in it, but some of it's just straight out looking at the numbers. You tell me a stock that's off 35%, probably dislocated, especially if that's not after a big gap up. And that wasn't the case with Amazon or with Facebook. Uh, and uh, and then one that's trading at a dramatic discount to its average multiple. I think both of those stocks hold, that's a dislocated stock. That's And if it's high quality, you know, you make your, your best returns are buying those high quality companies when they're dislocated. These names are dislocated now. Yeah. I mean, you, you, so in your coverage universe, you, you said Uber and Lyft as well, right? Yes. I mean, do, do those, do, I, you know, the, the private markets were great, right? The uh, companies stayed private for much longer. And so by the time that they got spun off to the public markets, it seemed like there wasn't a, much juice left in the fruit to squeeze. Yeah. You know, the, 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 do you think Uber and Lyft ever get to sustainable, attractive profitability? Or is this just a business model that that just plugs along and you just don't have a lot of the, unless they do some massive cost cuts, which seems like Dara's now finally coming around to the fact that they actually can't just keep growing no matter what. I really like Uber. Um, I don't know that it's high quality yet. You know, like I want a company that's got a track record of profitability. Uber had, doesn't have that. I don't think there's any structural reason why it can't. I guess in my 25 years of following companies, when I've had leading portfolio managers around the company put their fingers in my chest in the elevator and say, you know, Amazon's not, never going to be profitable. Well, it turns out it was pretty damn profitable. But, you know, I didn't know. I just, this is one of the first conversations on Wall Street. And, uh, and the person who did that to me, you know, was turned out to be a very famed investor. Uh, 
And uh, he was probably right, except he wasn't. Uh, and so the, one of the lessons I learned is scale solves just about everything. You, if the TAM total addressable market is big enough, if the company executes well within that, that means you need a great management team, good product innovation, really compelling value proposition, you're going to scale your way to profits. I'm pretty certain that Uber is going to do that. They came out public with about the biggest loss pile uh, I think it ever happened in the public markets. And then COVID forced them to cut costs. They were starting to scale anyway. And COVID also set them way back in terms of scale because people didn't ride share. We're, we're only now getting back to 2019 ride sharing levels. But I think, you know, uh, let me get this right. Uber is the global leader in ride sharing, global leader in delivery. Those are massive TAM markets. Those are TTAMs, trillion dollar plus markets. I think you're going to hit the first year of free cash flow, positive free cash flow for Uber. I'm going out five years. I think the free cash flow chunks are going to keep increasing every year. I think that something like this can can spit out dramatic amounts of free cash flow. You know, give me a few years and they will. And the market sooner or later is going to realize that and start and start paying up for that. So I I really like Uber. I, I think the TAMs are really large. Uh, I think the value proposition, like one great way, and I mentioned this in the book. How do you know whether a company really has a compelling value proposition? I'll tell you, see if they can raise prices and get away with it. That was the evidence for Netflix. I don't recommend Netflix as a stock now, but I did last decade because they were successfully raising prices and showing accelerating number of new subscribers. You mean you raise prices and you got even more people to sign up? That's a great value proposition. Amazon, they raised the price of Prime. I've forgotten now, Eric. They've done it like three or four times. I forget which one. It's every four years. And more people sign up for it. That's a freaking great value proposition. And what we've learned from Uber and from Lyft during the pandemic is prices went up. And you know what didn't the, the demand went up for those people who were traveling. Um, the demand uh, went up. Like there's a lot of pricing power just because the service, the value proposition of ride sharing versus what? Uh, you know, uh, driving yourself in traffic or you know, public transportation safe, maybe not, uh, or taxis. I mean, if you're taking on taxis, that's that's great competition. So I just I think the value proposition is proposition is compelling. I really like Uber. Uh, so it's um, is it a is it a high quality stock? I, I, they got to in order to get that label from me, they got to show me the profitability for a while. But I think they're going to get there. So there's still a little bit more of a speculative name and speculative future profit names are not going to do well in this market. But if you want like dramatic upside in the stock and you're willing to invest, not trade, but invest for like, you know, give me two years, give me three years. I'm talking about real investing. Uh, you know, I think Uber is may well have the best risk reward in this name. It's got a 50 billion market cap right now, 46, 46 billion market cap. This thing could be this thing could be a trillion market cap given the size of its end markets. It could be half a trillion market cap. I.e., it's a 10x play. Facebook's not a 10x from here. I think it can go up a lot. It's not a 10x. Neither is uh, Amazon. They can go up a lot. Uber, I really like, is kind of a long-term investor. Interesting. I the from just to go back on one thing on what you said about Amazon. I mean, do you worry at all about how asset-heavy Amazon's become? And they're going to get more asset heavy. Um, so, uh, well, uh, I'm trying to think of the right. I think the answer to your question is: What's what's Amazon's at the core of Amazon? What is their what is their core competence? What does Amazon do better than anybody else does? Is it advertising? Is it prices? Prices are actually pretty good, so they have a lot of scale. They have a scale advantage there. 
what is it that they're phenomenally good at, at least in their retail business? Logistics. Uh, it's that they can they can deliver you a product. They can deliver you a larger number of products uh, and get it to you faster and at a, as good a price as anybody in the world um, because of their logistics network. And this company has gone from four-day delivery to three-day delivery to two-day to one. And, and now they're going same day. And I think they're going to go what I call super same day. There are about 16 to 20 cities in the in the U.S., parts of cities, where you can buy something and get it within five hours. I think Amazon's gunning for two hours. And just imagine what that's like. Like this is a service. It's going to be more asset intensive, but they'll be able to get you pretty much whatever you want within two hours. So they're going to get you millions of items. Uh, and uh, I just think that there's this, uh, you know, we know this concept called demand elasticity, lower the price, the more the demand. I think there's a concept called shipping elasticity. Faster you ship, the more the people buy from you. And, um, and I think Amazon's going to prove that. I think they've been proving it over time, but I think they're going to be able to prove it more and more. So I don't have any problem with them being asset intensive because I just think the, the, the TAM, you know, retails $20 trillion TAM, uh, $20 trillion, yeah. A, a TAM worldwide. I just think their ability to tap into that TAM, they're going to have the scale. They'll be able to, that's a fixed cost business. They'll be able to flow an incredible amount of demand over that. There are some challenges. They're going to st they still have to work out groceries. That's a major area for them to figure out. Uh, there could be regulatory risks too, but this to me is, if I'm going to pick one stock that I think is just the, in the, in the space I look at, that's just the single best fundamental asset you want to own, it's Amazon. It's just the most successfully diversified business that I cover. Google's a great company, Facebook's a great company, et cetera, but Amazon, worldwide leader in re retail, worldwide leader in cloud computing, and in one of the top three or four names in advertising. And I still think they can get into um, business much more aggressively into a business and industrial supplies. And then I think they can get, they can become a major logistics player too. So that's five businesses, massive businesses that they could be the global leader in. That's not priced into the stock. And it's, that's an extremely good management team, really compelling value proposition, great product innovation. I mean, you tell me what other company has gone from, you know, selling books to selling everything online uh, and then invented Kindles and even much more important, invented, practically invented or commercialized, which is more important, uh, cloud computing. Uh, I just, you know, like the, the innovation track record here is really good. And I'll just stop, I'll just say one more thing and I'll shut up. The um, There's this saying in... Um, in uh, uh, in every SEC uh, disclosure, past performance is no indicator of future performance. Um, when it comes to investing in funds, and every every fund has to mention that. I'm going to flip that. I, when I think it comes, when I comes to these companies that I track, past performance is a pretty damn good indicator of future performance because it's the same management team, it's the same company. If they show you that they can innovate relatively well in one, two, or three areas. They can probably do it in other areas. That's probably a team you want to bet on. So anyway, that's that's why you know I'm one of the biggest Uber bulls you can find out there on uh, on Amazon. And if you're going to give me Amazon at uh, off forty percent on the year, and I get all the macro risk that they face, I completely get that. I didn't think that the numbers would come down as much as they did this year, but that's temporary. They will uh, transitory. Yeah, famous last words I know, but we're not going to have permanently up fuel and shipping costs by 100% year over year forever. That's not going to be the case. So sooner or later, at some point when those costs abate, Amazon's margins are going to rise. Revenue growth is going to be super strong. This stock is going to re-rate materially. Estimates are going to go up. It's going to be a great double-barreled opportunity for Amazon. That's it.
Well, I love it. I mean, I love, we own it and it's been, you know, it's been frustrating. And that's certainly that last quarter was, was a little shocking, but it's funny. You you have to remind yourself of from the beginning of Amazon, they told you we are going, we don't care about quarter to quarter and you shouldn't either. If you're in this stock, we are about investing in the future and innovating. And sometimes that means spending more money, you know, in, in our, in our spend and innovate phase. And hopefully our, you know, when you come out of that phase, you'll reap the benefits of with free cash flow and revenue, all that stuff. But man, the last couple of years has been, has been tough. They did so well in the pandemic and then the stock has just been a big goose egg and poor Andy Gassi has had to take over kind of at the top (laughs) and, and, you know, has, has gotten a bunch of grief because, you know, now he's the guy everybody's, you know, pointing their finger at, but I'm with you on the, from a dislocated quality stocks, anything in the travel area? I mean, I I know, I think maybe we have even gone through a a few back and forth. I think with booking holdings as part of your coverage too, right? Yes, that's right. You know, obviously we're all ganged up to get out and travel because we haven't, you know, got our fill for the last two years. But what speaks to you in that, in that market you know, it's, I mean, I, I don't own booking now, but I do own Expedia because I feel like Expedia is yeah. the value play. And I, and I also feel like if management was smart, they would, they would, they would spin out the VRBO division or at least part of it and kind of monetize some of that and then use that, use the money for, for the core Expedia. But, you know, because you have this comp out there with Airbnb, but would love to hear your, your view on the travel sector. They, they clearly have have you know been forced to right size their businesses and you know really get some good operating efficiencies? I think Expedia on their last call, they, he's like, we're doing what we did with ten thousand less employees now. You know, I mean that that eventually will matter to the P and L and and our operating metrics over to when we get back to quote unquote normal. So we'd love to hear from a dislocated if there's anything interesting to say in the travel and leisure sector at all. I like both booking and Airbnb, and I'm not opposed to being long Expedia. There, there is a, um, we, there is a, it's, I, I hate, I don't like this revenge spend concept. It just, I don't know what we're revenging, but, but there is maze, uh, enormous amount of pent up travel demand. A uh, booking just printed bookings, booking holdings just printed its biggest bookings quarter ever in the March quarter. So they're post COVID. Uh, and uh, the summer travel season is going to be extremely hot. Airbnb is going to benefit from it, Expedia and Booking. I upgraded Booking earlier this year. Booking, Booking, when it was known as Priceline, was a phenomenal stock for a decade. It's kind of like there was this phenomenal blockbuster stock called Priceline, and then Netflix, all throughout was Amazon, but Priceline was a phenomenal stock. I, that uh, they, they were a thousand bag, no, hundred bagger, hundred bagger. We all try to invest to find 10 baggers. That they had a CEO there who delivered a hundred bagger. I don't think I'll ever see that. I'd love to see that again in my lifetime. I'm not sure I will. Phenomenal job. And they, they benefited from having a really large TAM. And then they eventually went X premium growth. You can't sustain 20% growth forever. And when they did, the stock kind of just traded in line with the market. Not bad, but just traded in line with the market. It always had a very reasonable valuation. Step forward to this year. To me, it's a Venn diagram stock. So booking is one of my top three picks here. It's a Venn diagram stock in that it's a clear recovery name. We are going out, uh, you know, and I'm uh, and travel is going to get cut in the recession too. But it'll be one of the last things people were so pent up because we were so locked up for two years. I'm, I'm exaggerating when I say locked up, but you know there was clearly a lot of you know 
full family spend. Uh, travel hasn't happened. International hasn't really recovered yet. So booking is a great recovery play, but I'm looking for those Venn diagrams. So I want Venn, I want a recovery play and something that's high quality. Well, here's booking. It trades at like 17 times earnings. Hello, that's kind of close to a market multiple. It's got a bullet, it's not bulletproof balance sheet, but it's a very strong balance sheet, tons of cash. They always buy back stock. Uh, and then they've got margins that are like 30% margins. And so, wait a second, this is like, this is like, you know, travel play. It's Google-esque in terms of the balance sheet. You're not that big, but, you know, it's a very strong balance sheet uh, in terms of the margins uh, and then the recovery play. So I got both my value. I got both, you know, high quality in terms of the business model and valuation. And I got a recovery play. Venn diagram stocks. I really like booking here. I like Airbnb, too. Uh, it's always been a little lower because of the valuation work and, you know, value investors like yourself, Eric, would have a hard time getting behind Airbnb. Great business model, the bulletproof balance sheet, et cetera. It's just that um, the multiple has been, been pretty, pretty aggressive. You had to, had to, had to, it's hard to see how you get a double in two years, which is kind of what I'm, I think you can get in a good number of stocks now. But, um, but the one thing is that the, the stock has been hit down so much. It got down to like 23 times EBITDA, which is an intrinsically high multiple. But for a name like this, that's going to give you 30% top line growth. You mentioned something earlier, Eric, about how COVID, COVID was kind of a structural win for travel companies, ironically, because it forced them to cut costs. Yep. And then we had this massive shift during COVID towards alternative accommodations, i.e. that's Airbnb. So um, I just think that they got a demand boost from COVID and a cost boost from COVID because they were forced to, forced to, get, um, to, get, to, get, to, to get tight on their expenses. And um, anyway, so I, I like Airbnb, but my top pick uh, in that space and one of my top three picks overall is booking. So your top three picks, you got booking, you got Amazon, I'm going to assume. And face, Facebook is the third. Facebook. Interesting. I, yeah, I mean, is it, is it because of core Facebook or because of this potential metaverse pivot with, with I mean, it seems like their core business is stable, but it's certainly not the big grower that it once was. And, and the metaverse might be something that's just, you know, it's kind of a call option, if you will, for now. You just don't necessarily know what's going to happen. I mean, what's, what, what about Facebook aside from it's, it's clearly gotten crushed? Sentiment on is pretty bad. Um, what about Facebook? You just think it's just very stable? Yeah, Eric, it's not metaverse. Uh, metaverse to me is like option value. It's kind of like buying Google for Waymo. Right. That's probably a good idea, but like, don't buy it just for Waymo. Like that should be, that's the cherry on top and you got to eat the whole pie before you even get to that. And it could be a big cherry, by the way, I'm, I'm ruining the analogy, but you get what I mean. Uh, uh, you know, like, yeah, I want to be long the uh, autonomous vehicle uh, driver, you know, um, technology winner. Yeah. I want to be long that. Absolutely. That's five to 10 years out. Metaverse is five to 10 years or more out. No, Facebook is, wait a second. Now we're 12 or 13 times earnings. Last time I checked, they're still the two largest social media assets in the world, Instagram, Facebook. Last time I checked, they're still the two largest messaging applications in the world, WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. Intrinsically high margin business, they're deep in investment mode and they're still doing 30% operating margins. Uh, they got, you know, gobs of cash. I forget what the latest number is, but it's 50, 60 billion in cash on the balance sheet. They're buying back a chunk of um, stocks that are bringing down the share count. That always helps earnings. Growth and tech investors like myself don't give companies much credit for that, but you value people do. And, uh, and it does help with the earnings growth. I get that. And then I just think that the market just got way overbared up on, uh, on Facebook. It's almost like it took the brunt of society's ills and just everything was thrown at it. What I've got in the back half of the year is this acceleration as they comp 
the Apple privacy changes as, uh, and I think you'll get acceleration because they start monetizing these reels videos that you've seen in your Facebook and in your Instagram um, uh, uh, news feeds. Hey, the world's gone uh, to short form video. TikTok taught us all that you know short form video is is highly entertaining and addictive too. Uh, and um, so anyway, but, but Facebook can play in that game just like they played in stories in the past. Uh, and then there's something else that I've sort of forgotten, but um, uh, I think they are better monetizing. I think they're I think they're engineering their way through the Apple privacy morass. I think they have easy ability uh, to better monetize reels. I think the TikTok challenge is substantial, but I also think it's overstated. And I'm just seeing recent evidence of how ad budgets are starting to shift back to Facebook and sort of capping out at TikTok. Uh, you know, we'll wait. I want to give that a couple of quarters to really see if that's a trend. But I'm starting to see it. And um, yeah, and I think that's I think that's that's largely it. So I think it's a high quality asset. Uh, it's been dislocated, um, dramatically dislocated. Uh, and uh, I just think when you 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 know, I I think this is a case where I think estimates on the street are too low. And I think the multiple, like 12 times earnings, I think this thing has got a chance to trade 20 times, 17, 18, 19 times earnings. So that's just a heck of a lot of upside to a stock. So yeah, Facebook's one of my top picks. All right, hold on. I don't know why the screen just got ahead of me. Um, so looking at, at some of the chapters, you know, we talked about the hunt for dislocated quality stocks, obviously big TAMs. Follow management, you know, that, that's one of those intangibles and I, I deal in brands. So that's a the brand in general is a, is a bit of an intangible asset. What, what management teams of the ones that, you know, outside of what you've already talked about, are there any management teams that you're just like, gosh, man, th those, those guys get it. They're good capital allocators or they really see the future very clearly. You know, anything, you know, in your roster that yeah. you really just I'll, I'll throw out a couple of ideas and, uh, and yes, I, I've been mostly talking. I sort of forgot to pitch my book. So again, it's it's um, it's the book's called Nothing But Net, and I really tried to draw lessons from the last 25 years of covering tech stocks. I'm the longest lasting and oldest internet analyst on the street, and uh, I've made plenty of mistakes. Uh, and I you know I draw from the, the the sell I once had on Amazon, the sell I once had on Google, uh, the um, the buy I once had on Blue Apron. So I've, I've got you know my share of scars, and I've tried to draw lessons from that, and also the stocks I got right, Priceline. Um, uh, and uh, and Netflix and Amazon and Google and and Facebook, but you know Facebook's recently corrected materially. But anyway, one of the things I look for, you know, I look for these four things to determine high quality stocks: total, you know, the, their market opportunities, the level of innovation, how compelling the value proposition is, and the strength of the management team. And that management team is probably the most important of those factors. So I look for founder-led companies. I know this. The, the consulting firms have run studies on this that prove that founder-led companies do better. I, um, I, it's not the right way to study it, but look at the largest tech companies in the world, the most successful ones. They pretty much all had founders involved for substantial periods of time. Uh, and I don't know what it is about founders, but you know, it's their baby, their skin in the game. They're willing to take these long-term bets, usually that professional managers aren't. And usually the money's been made in these stocks when long-term bets, not the short-term bets, when the long-term bets pay off. I think that's the lesson of Amazon versus eBay. That's um, in spades. I think that's what the lesson of that is. And maybe Google versus Yahoo in spades. I think that's what the lesson of that is. So I look for founder-led companies, companies with you know great industry vision. I want companies that really you know walk the walk, talk the talk, talk about long-term value orientation, 
talk about, um, I want, I want uh, um, managers to come on and talk about on every earnings call, what their one-year plan is, their five-year and their 10-year plan. Actually, I like the fact that Facebook does that. A few companies do that, not too many though. So I like that long-term orientation, a real a hyper-focus on, um, on product development and R&D. And um, yeah, but beyond that, it's, um, you know, what determine you, you got to wait. I, my report card, I, I wait a couple of years before I give any management team that kind of, you know, A plus or A or even A minus on their report card. So it's a, it, you're right. It's an intangible. I do bias towards founder led companies. And, uh, and I do look for, um, you know, I do look for the ability like, show me a couple of good uh, uh, pivots. You know, the, uh, I mean, this is 15 to almost 17 years ago when Amazon rolled out AWS. You could have been a skeptic for the first couple of years. Eventually, though, somewhere, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, it was like, well, there really is a business here. And you should have stepped back and said, um, wait a second, this is the online retailer that's not really successful in cloud computing. I just got to be long this asset. And uh, yes, you just missed 300 percent move from uh, from 2006 to 2010. But you were ahead of uh, you know, the next uh, multiples moves. So um, anyway, that's that's hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the regulation thing is it, you know it's it's been kind of looming out there, but now they're getting they, the FTC is talking a little louder about Google. And you know, I, I always wonder, you know, is the reason that Facebook and Google trade at a seems like a structural discount that doesn't seem warranted relative to the business? I mean, do you see that as, you know, a, a real threat or is, is the potential unlocking of, you know, okay, you have, you might have to spin out a YouTube or you might have to spin out, you know, core search or, or, or whatever. Is that an unlocking event that's positive or do you worry that this is a lot of hot, you know, hot air, but it never ends up going anywhere at all. I mean, any, any views on that? I don't know if you read Scott Galloway's The Four, that book. Yes, I, I, did. Thought, it was, I thought it was a good book. You know, he's got his bias and agree or disagree but it, there's cert, there's certainly logic behind it so would love to hear your thought on that because that's big fan of scott big fan of scott big fan of his books books and uh, uh read them and uh and uh you know personal personal friend uh let's see um regulatory risk is real what it means is that large-scale acquisitions are largely off the table not fully but largely off the table and so that means that the growth estimates you know, we, that means you should that that means that there should be a lower multiple, not like it's great value creation to do acquisitions, but you can. There, there, I've seen some extremely successful uh, acquisitions in the past book uh, Priceline buying booking.com, Google buying YouTube, uh, Facebook buying Instagram, uh, Microsoft maybe buying LinkedIn. Um, Apple, it's harder for me to come up with an example. Amazon is harder for me to come up with an example, but as Zappos. And in Kiva, the robotics company. So you know, they're, they're, those last two were smaller acquisitions. But um, you know, if you if you take away the ability of these companies to do large scale acquisitions, at some level, you've limited their growth outlook. So that should lower the multiple a little bit. You, the target multiple you're willing to put on them. And then, will these companies get broken up? I doubt it, but it's possible. Uh, these companies have to be a lot more careful. Um, and I think it really just shows up in their inability to do large scale acquisitions. I, I, I haven't seen any regulation yet that's really fundamentally changed the E, you know, the, the earnings, uh, but it's changed the PE to your point, uh, Eric, it's kind of dampened down that the, the multiple that the stocks will change. And I think the logic behind it is because they've just kind of, you've taken one of the growth quivers out of the arrow basket. 
Did I get that out? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I think I screwed that up, but you get what I'm saying. Um, so um, yeah, I, 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 I find it hard to believe that Google is going to be broken up. I can't see the logic for why you would break up uh, Amazon. Are these companies aggressive? Absolutely, they are. That's how they got to where they are. Um, uh, so, you know, and, and uh, regulators, if you're going to, if you're working at the Department of Justice and you're not looking at, you know, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, like who are you looking at? Uh, so I think there's absolutely a reason to scrutinize these companies and um, they do have very sharp elbows, uh, but I don't know that they've done stuff to, to actually cause them to be broken up. Uh, I, I think we got a little bit over overhanded. Um, I just, you know, like these companies do provide enormous benefits to the to the to the um, you know to the economy to the U.S. economy. Um, I think that's true. They and intrinsically very positive value propositions. Like this is not forget that what what Facebook and Google offered people for free. Uh, you can say that there's a trade off in data, but you know you know that. I mean, uh, so you don't have to go on Facebook if you don't want to. You, but you know, there's three billion people on there for a reason. And uh, and I guess the last thing is the you know the competition is there like. Uh, in a lengthy report that uh, was written by um, one of the subcommittees on antitrust in the House, and they talked about all the things that Facebook has done. I don't think they mentioned TikTok. Like, really? Uh, you know, like the, the competition will come for these companies. Amazon, Amazon now is having a problem really outpacing e-commerce because we've seen a lot of other companies come up. So I, I generally think not always. I generally think the market can kind of solve a lot of these problems. And I know that's just theory, but in fact, it's true in a case of social media, Facebook and TikTok. It's true in terms of uh, Facebook. I'm sorry. Yeah, Facebook. And, um, uh, it's true in terms of Amazon and competition companies like uh, Shopify. And uh, the one company that uh, the, the, the real the two, the real issues to me are those those operating system companies, Google and Apple. Uh, th those operating systems are awfully powerful. So that that to me is where you know uh, the regulators should probably focus. Uh, just as an uh, ignorant tech analyst, that's kind of where they should they should focus. Right. I was actually going to ask you: Is Shopify part of your your? Uh, yes, it is. Well, I mean, obviously, great company, big fan of Toby. The stock was unbelievably expensive. I, I get in this kind of market why the thing has has come back to earth. I mean. Still not, I would say, still not cheap. I mean, I, I'm not a, I'm not a traditional quote unquote value manager. Um, I'm, I like you. I like good, innovative, big river type of opportunities, big themes. Shopify is, you know, kind of doing what Amazon's doing for their clients, but for everybody else, it seems. I mean, do, has has enough air come out of the Shopify story, or is it? Do you see any structural headwinds for them? I don't see structural headwinds for them. I think they need to make a decision, a major strategic decision about what they want to do with fulfillment. I sense that they're yeah, I, uh, shipping in fulfillment. Um, this is a company that um, did a phenomenal job, software company did a phenomenal job building out a suite of tools for their customers. Uh, super. Um, you want to get into fulfillment and shipping? Um, like, uh, I just... I, I, the question I've asked that, that management team is like, who's going to be doing this for you? Who are the executives doing this for you? Who like, uh, um, what, what are the, what's their cred like? Do they have how much, what kind of distribution networks and fulfillment networks have they run before? They worked at Walmart, right? Or they worked at Amazon, right? Because uh, you better get people with those kind of skill sets because it's a dramatically different competency than what Shopify grew up with. 
So they had to buy that, acquire that, hire that competency, and maybe they've got it. I just, I just wonder about that. And they've also talked about getting into advertising. That strikes me as a little easier to, to segue into yeah. shipping and fulfillment. Like I think there's, I think my frankly, my crude, my crude suggestion to them, and I've written this is, you know, you should really do a, a deal with fulfillment by Amazon. Do a deal with Amazon. And like, I, I know there'd be two stocks that would go up that day, yours and Amazon's. And that's okay that Amazon stock goes up because I, I just think that they're, they're, they're taking on execution risk that they may not be able to handle. You just, you know, companies just can't do everything. And um, I think that's an example of overstretch. But anyway, I, I do have a buy on Shopify. I wrote about this last quarter. It's probably one of the worst upgrades in my career. I, I was trying, I held off, held off, held off. And then last November or December, after a 20, 30% correction, I stepped in on Shopify. And the thing has just gone down 60% since then. So I completely mistimed it. it. Do I still think it's a fundamentally very strong asset? Yes. Uh, are high multiple stocks, and it's still high multiple. Hold on, it's 113 times EBITDA. Woo! So that's not going to work in this market. Um, that one you got to be willing to st stick with for two or three years, or just leave it and come back next year. I, I don't know which is the right uh, answer. And since I screwed it up by upgrading it in November, I should probably be not the person you li you listen to to get right. figure out shop no, about. I've been similar. I, I I'm like I don't understand why with with all the players that are out there in this space. Why, why do you, why would you use that as your, your, your capital allocation decision? Uh, hey, we're going to spend a ton of money in a new area that's super asset heavy with much lower margins. <laughs> that, that sales pitch is not interesting. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, you know, I may be wrong. I mean, they've done a phenomenal job in a lot of different places like payments uh, and, um, and capital and, you know, and they, they do, uh, you know, they, they could do it. They're they're creating the re, they're creating the operating system for for everybody but Amazon. There there's some there's real value to that. So, Eric, I know we're running out of time soon. I just want to make sure we cover everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. This has been absolutely amazing for everybody. You have got to go get Mark's book, Nothing But Net. It's just it covers so much of. I mean, I think it covers psychology. It just covers letting people realize like there's the market and then there's businesses and then here. Over short periods of time, it seems like you know value gets to win for 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 shorter windows. But over the long term and over multi decades, companies that just have better growth profiles and big opportunities to expand and grow their revenue and generate free cash. I mean, those are just the most logical things that an investor should be focused on. And and during those weird periods where that style factor isn't working. Yes, it's frustrating sometimes, particularly if you're heavy in that, like we are, but it's also the opportunity you get to buy great stuff on sale and buying those dislocated companies. So, I mean, thank you for writing the book. It's, it's, it's just kind of thank you, Eric. An, an amazing desktop reference for me doing what I do with brands. And, uh, you know, I'll, and what's your, what's your Twitter handle for people to follow you? Uh, just Mark Mahaney. Mark Mahaney. Yeah, and, and you guys, I know you do an institutional research subscription. Do you do anything for from a retail perspective? No, sorry, Eric. Okay, just wanted to make sure for our listeners. I'm sure they'd be like, "How do I get access to Mark's research?" Well, you gotta, you gotta go through an institution. I'm guessing, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, but thank you, Eric. It was it was great spending time with you today, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity and and uh, and the pitch for the book. I much appreciate it. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. Talk to you. You later. too. Take care.
Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the Dynamic Brands section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the Dynamic Brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.